wonderful to see all of you face to face. It's just tremendous. Praise the Lord for that and praise the Lord for the good turnout. I couldn't help but remember when Don Riley bravely took on that Louisiana name of that town about uh, the st- a story Charles Chuck Swindoll used to tell about <clears throat> being in Louisiana and he was arguing with um, his friends over how to pronounce the city they were in and the city is spelled L-A-F-A-Y-E-T-T-E. With me? And what's the debate? Lafayette? or Lafette, and uh, they couldn't agree on it. <clears throat> so Swindoll said, it's Lafayette. The other said, no, it's Lafette. They said, well, let's just go in this restaurant and figure it out. And uh, so he gets up to the counter, and he says, uh, pardon me, ma'am, uh, how do you pronounce the name of this place? And she looked around and said, uh, Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14 is our text. If I knew we were going to be on video, I would have shaved this morning. So I apologize to the crowd. Don't tune in too quickly, too closely. Matthew writes, chapter 18, as, Paul, as um, Todd has set us up so well, we're now in the, in the climax, really, of the, we're, we're at the peak where we are beginning to, or or climbing toward the peak of the cross. But here is the the central point of where the kingdom comes to conflict with the flesh. We've been learning it all along. Jesus is the king, we are not. Jesus has a kingdom, this world is not it. But here is where... The real conflict crashes, where, the, where the, the kingship of Christ comes into direct and we might even say violent confrontation with our disposition to be kings. Listen to it, therefore, that way. At that time... The disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you've studied Matthew for 17 chapters. You've heard a lot of teaching. This is really an astounding question. After all of this teaching, you have the hubris to ask this question. So, after all this teaching on the kingdom, Lord Jesus, now tell us, which of us? is the greatest in the kingdom. Now, uh, Jesus answers them in a very kind way. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn or repent and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if or when he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it. He rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let us pray. Lord King Jesus, We pray, however falteringly, that this morning you would turn our worlds upside down, that you would come as king into this place and take this preacher, every man in this room, especially those of us who have walked with you a while and really think we know a lot. Take us and turn us inside out, upside down. And may we not leave here in any other way than as a child. In Jesus' name we pray. God's men said together, amen. You know, in, uh, in Alabama... There's a certain number of skills that you have to obtain before you're considered a man. Uh, it's not memorizing your catechism, though it should be, or learning the Bible. It's, it's important, even more important things like learning how to back a boat trailer, those kinds of skills. And what is it when you're backing a trailer, what, 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 what is the hardest thing to understand? It's that... Whatever you want the trailer to do, you've got to do what is exactly against your instinct. If you want the trailer to go that way, well, you would think, just turn the wheel that way. But when you turn the wheel that way, you don't see the trailer. The trailer's gone that way. You say, I want to go that way, so you turn the, the, the steering wheel that way, and the trailer ends up over there. And this is the way Jesus has been has been teaching us in the book of Matthew and especially how it happens here. He says to live in the kingdom, to live under my kingship, to live a faithful Christian life, to be a disciple of Christ, one who <clears throat> is a tool that comes readily to my hand through whom I can accomplish kingdom things, is in most every instant to do the opposite of what your instinct is. 
To live for Christ is in most instances to do the opposite of what your natural instinct is. It's why so few of us live the Christian life. It's why so few of us are being persecuted. Why so few of us are truly advancing the kingdom. Why so few of us stand out in a crowd and everybody, most everybody around us looks and says, you know, he's a really nice guy. He's a great guy. I really like that guy. He's a little weird. He goes to church on Sunday, that sort of thing. But otherwise, he's just like us. Poses no threat to us. Doesn't stand out. Pursues all the same things we do. Oh, maybe he's a little more honest than usual in a business dealing, but he never does anything that would get him singled out as a fanatic or one that we don't want at our parties anymore, which was the characteristic of first century Christians. And here Jesus says, if you're going to be in my kingdom, you must become as one whom everybody regards as not very important. Now, I have to confess to you, I've lived with this text all week, and I don't think I understood it until late last night. After a dramatic experience, a pastoral experience, that set my world upside down, and I'll share a little bit of it with you a bit later. But the typical way I've taught this text is to teach what I now understand to be the secondary application of the text, not the primary application. The primary application is really understood when we, you know, as you've been learning, you know, we're, we're in this study, we're not only wanting to teach you what the text is, but teach you how to learn the text. And what's the first thing you ask? What is the context? And the context is in response to what has happened before, especially the interaction or interactions between Jesus and Peter. So I'm going to use the same points that you have on your outline, but apply them in a bit different way from what I was planning. So here's the, here's the thesis, the overall thesis. If we're going to live under Christ's lordship, we must accept His priorities for becoming spiritual children, guiding spiritual children, and pursuing spiritual children. And uh, I'll apply that in a little bit different way than I was planning. Verses 1 through 5 is this theme of if we're going to live under Christ's lordship, if Christ is going to be our Lord, if He's going to use us to move His kingdom forward, if we're going to stand out as those who are truly believers, disciples of Jesus Christ, then we must become like children. Now, how do we typically understand this text? And that's a, it's a secondary application. Secondary application is Jesus loves the little children. He does. Throughout Scripture, God makes promises to covenant children, and uh, I use this text on, uh, with frequency as we, as we baptize children, and I say, this is the Lord Jesus' regard for children. 
He, he wants children to grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So we as parents give our best to discipling our children. I look around at the men in this room who devote themselves to teaching children in Sunday school, being with them in, in nursery, and trying to make an impact on them from their earliest days. We believe in that. We're committed to that, that children are to be taught the kingdom of God, to be raised as disciples, and God's uh, generous promise is that He ordinarily draws the children of believers to Himself. And by the way, the word children here, if this is a more generic one, but the parallel passages are not uh, that, that these are toddlers, but this is a brefe, this is a baby, this is an infant in Jesus' arms, which makes the primary application all the more clear. That what Jesus is really teaching is that if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be considered to be one who walks under my kingship, in my kingdom, if you're one who is going to be used by you, you must become as helplessly dependent upon me as this baby in my arms. Now, you know, a baby is something to be admired, something we look at them, we think they're cute and so forth, but they're a lot of trouble. Uh, we've been, a bunch of us old goats up here who've raised children, we're talking about how glad we are God has brought us beyond that, uh, you know, there's, there, there, there's, it's, it's dealing with fluids and substances at inopportune times all the time. They are totally dependent on you. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to be. In fact, that's what I'm going to ensure that you become before you enter my kingdom. And Jesus will ensure that that happens to you before you get to heaven. And so the application is that you can either cooperate with that now and allow Him to make you as weak and dependent and helpless uh, as you rely on Him, or He will beat it into you. He will crush it into you. And by the time you die anyway, by the time you die, when someone you are dependent on an, a, a machine, or you can't breathe any longer, you can't move, your organs fail, if that's what it takes, that's the point to which God will take you in order to get you ready for heaven. We can look at the process of, of just human existence to say it is the process, this, uh, this birth to death, that the, that the slide to death is God's final process of getting us ready for the kingdom of God because He is determined you are going to be like a child before you enter my gates. And you're either going to cooperate with me while you're living, or certainly by your death, I will make sure that you understand you only come through my gates in total dependence upon me. Changes the way we view suffering, doesn't it? Changes the way we view aging. It changes the way we view deprivation, or humbling, or humiliation, or the loss of business, or the loss of reputation, or the loss of rights that this is where I am supposed to be. And you can either live life like this, 
You can either live life like this with your chest puffed out, or you can curl up in the arms of Jesus and say, I want to be your child now. No matter what that costs me, the way it looks to other people, what it looks like in my professional life, I only have so long to live. I want you now to make me a child. Because I know from the rest of your word that it is only through my weakness that you can demonstrate your strength. If I continue to project that I am strong, if I continue to project that you can have it all and still be a disciple of Christ, then that is the fuzz, that is the static that's going to keep the world from understanding that you are truly the only Savior. So here's a prayer that we might pray. It's an old Dutch poem. Make me, O Lord, a child again, so tender, frail, and small, in self-possessing nothing, and in Thee, possessing all. O Savior, make me small once more, that downward I may grow, and in this heart I mine restore the faith of long ago. With Thee, May I be crucified, no longer I that lives. O Savior, crush my sinful pride by grace, which pardon gives. Make me, O Lord, a child again, obedient to Thy call, in self-possessing nothing, and in Thee possessing all. You've uh, heard people quip that you should never pray for God to humble you because He'll answer that prayer. That's heresy. It is the calling of this passage. Humble me, then I might become a child now. Don't wait until I'm on my deathbed to make me a child. I had a friend who used to say, uh, you know, I really thought I was something until I was 30 years old. And uh, he was on his career trajectory, and, and the Lord uh, gave him the gift of a nervous breakdown. And I used to think, that's really strange. And, um, and then I turned 35. It took me a little longer for the Lord to teach me that I really was nothing. And I haven't arrived but I have understood, you know, that uh, yesterday I was uh, introduced to some of our uh, fellows, this uh, program we have here for post-college um, post <laughs> students who come and <clears throat> um, get a job and go through a program that we have here. And uh, the director, who is a very dear friend of mine, introduced me and said, now, what will strike you about George is how humble he is. Now... Um, knowing this friend so well and knowing how well she knew me, I knew what she meant. You know, typically when you're announced as humble, you say, oh, shucks, you know. Yeah, you got that right. But uh, <clears throat> because you fooled them into thinking you're humble, you've acted humble. But people who really know you and introduce you as humble mean, oh, we've, we've, seen him humbled. And she knows. She knows my lifelong battle with anxiety and depression. She knows the things that I've struggled with. She and her husband have, as being dear friends as they are, 
know all of my faults. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I, um, I felt the sting of, I don't want to be introduced that way. You know, I want, I mean, here are new people. Let's fool them for a little while. Let's tell them how great I am. Let's tell them how altogether, how together I am. And sort of, don't, don't blow it from the beginning. We don't like that. When we begin to feel that sting of, ooh, yes, yes, I've been humbled. The Lord Jesus in my sanctification process has shown me I am nothing. And what's more, He's turned it outside and He's actually shown the people that I really would rather not them, them not see that, oh, yeah, you're right, you are nothing. That's where Jesus wants us to be. I don't only want you to feel humble. If you're going to be my disciple, I'm going to turn you inside out to the world. And it's going to be clear to them that it's by my grace that you are strong. It's going to be, you're going to commend the gospel to them. They're going to look at you and say, wow, if Jesus can use somebody like that, he can use me. That's where Jesus wants us to be. Now, if that is true, <clears throat> and it, it, I said uh, we understand this by the context, and I almost uh, forgot to make mention of this. This follows on the conversations that Jesus has had with Peter. <clears throat> Most recently, when he asked Peter this question in verses 24 and following about the tax. And, uh, you know, here's another word. Here's a, big, here's a big question. I got a tough question for you disciples. Well, here's my star student. Peter, why don't you answer? Now, we haven't heard much about Peter in the first... Thir- we don't hear much about Peter in the first 13 chapters of Matthew. But in chapters 14 to 19, Peter's name is mentioned over a dozen times. <laughs> so it stands to reason... That with Jesus always talking about Peter, there he goes talking about Peter again. Then these disciples start a- ask this question. At the time, that uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they're expecting him to say, Peter. Peter is probably expecting them to say, Peter. Because he has put himself forward. <clears throat> and Jesus says, no, it's a child. And if we had the music playing behind this narrative, it would turn rather ominous because you would know what's ahead for Peter. Peter's arrogance is going to be destroyed to the point that he actually, the the one who said, I will follow you to death, is the one who betrays him, sells him out. The one who wanders away from the disciples. The one who is so ashamed he can't face Jesus, unless Jesus confronts him. I'll tell you who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The one you think is going to be greatest, well, he will go through the process that will be necessary for anyone to be useful in the kingdom of heaven. So there's our first point. To be useful to King Jesus is to become like a child, and Jesus will ensure that it happens at least by the time you die. Secondly, we have this warning about temptations, verse 7 through 9, woe to the world for temptations 
to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. <clears throat> I'm sorry, but woe to the one to whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better to be crippled and so forth than to enter into eternal fire with, with, um, with all these accoutrements and these appendages. And then verse 10, do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of the Father who is in heaven. Um, now, how do we usually teach that text? <clears throat> it is that you must take care of little children. Don't, don't sin in front of them. Don't lead them astray. Or sometimes we say, sometimes we say, you must be careful with someone who is less mature in the faith. If you call someone less mature in the faith to stumble, then it would be better for you to have this millstone arrangement, you know, these giant millstones that, that uh, you know, crushed the grain, had a big hole in the middle of it. You poured the grain in the middle of it, and, and it, it fell down among the wheels, and they would crush the It would be better for you to stick your head in that and have somebody throw you with it into the water than to cause a little one to sin. Now, that is true. We must be ruthless in battling our own sin. We must be ruthless in battling our own thoughts. Whatever tempts you, be ruthless in cutting it out of your life. If it's a computer, if it's media, if it's, uh, if it's engagement with a particular person, if it's a particular practice, be ruthless in cutting it out of your life. But I think, that's, I think the primary application is different. I was pretty hard on us in that first point about God will make sure you are a child at least by the time you die. But here is the reason God insists on it. There is no way to know how much you're loved until you become a child. And here is a display of the, the, the feverish love that God has for you. That where His children, you see, the, the temptations don't come from fellow Christians. The temptations come from the world. And if the world's temptations cause one of my little ones to stumble, it's better that they be thrown into the sea with a millstone than that, uh, that it should come through them. He's talking about you. He's protecting you. When you become a child, Lord Jesus, I surrender totally to you that you might use me and that I might experience your love. And here is the expression of his love, how, how mercilessly protective he is of you. You know, we, here's this, uh, this, uh, this, this promise of their angels in verse 10. Their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. And typically, somebody says, each child has a guardian angel or each, children, each child of God has a guardian angel. Calvin said, nobody could get by in this life with just one angel. There's no such thing as one guardian angel. It takes armies of angels to get any of us knuckleheads to heaven. But here... He says more than that. He says when you are childlike in following Christ, you are guarded by angels who face the Father. It's an Eastern custom of those who are, who are closest to the king, who are most honored by the king. Those sentinels are around the throne, and they look at him 
face to face. And so here's the, here's the image, and we get it from the book of Revelation. These angels are surrounding the throne of God, and they are there at the beck and call of God to protect you and me. It is not until you are surrendered to Him as a baby, until you are helplessly a baby in His arms, that you realize how much He loves you, how much He protects you, until you experience the protection of Him. If you go through life thinking, it's up to me to provide everything, if I don't compromise my faith, if I don't blend in, I'm not going to have enough to provide for my family. If I don't guard my reputation myself, if I don't try to market myself, then I'm not going to, you know, you got to take care of yourself. Then you're never going to experience the love of the Father rushing in to protect you as you are helpless against your enemies by His dispatching His angels that face Him day and night. That's what it is to live in the kingdom. It is that thrill. It is that joy. It is that it is living the New Testament from the inside out. It's experiencing what Peter and Paul did with the the jail doors swinging open. And how much of us are living in this are buying into this 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 recent frantic fear in our culture. Frantic fear of losing our rights or defending ourselves, or defending our race, or defending our whatever, when we could be living as children saying, Lord Jesus, I'm no match. You do it. You fight the battles in such a way that you obviously get the glory. The first aspect is becoming a child. The second aspect is, I said guiding children, but it is being protected as a child. And the third glorious experience of becoming childlike in the kingdom is to be pursued by the Father. Now, how do we typically teach this? You know, this is, what, this is a call for evangelism. That is certainly a secondary application that, that we can't spend the majority of our time, you know, just making sure Christians are comfortable. We must constantly be going for the lost. That is certainly an application. I just don't think it's the primary application of this text. The primary application of this text is who's going after. Your angels face the Father who is in heaven, and then following on that, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one has gone astray, does he leave the ninety-nine in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than ninety-nine that ever went away. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And in the parallel passage, it is the Father... And his angels rejoice over this one who is brought back. That's you. If you are Christ's child, then, then you, you know, as much as it stings, as, as painful as it might be to be humbled by him, to be crushed and made helpless and dependent, then it is only in that place that you begin to experience the, the protective love of the Father. It's only in that position that you begin to experience the rejoicing pursuit of you by the Father, because you and I are constantly wandering astray, right? 
We're constantly wandering to the right and to the left. And God could say, you know, I've got about a billion of these people. I've got plenty in heaven already. Let's just shut this operation down. Just let him go. But he never does. It's as if you and 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 you. It's as if you're the only one. He continues to go after you and me. And he never does it begrudgingly, but he does it with the same spirit that we find Jesus meeting this this stupid question at the beginning of the passage. It's with his patience and to the point that he's so happy when he comes back home. We've got a little bird dog. I was just crying on Art's shoulder here, a little bird dog who really resents being kept in a yard. He needs a thousand acres every day. And he's, he always gets out. He sees a bird, and he's gone. It makes us so mad, we have to go get him again. But the same thing happens every single time. We grab him, we bring him back home, and we say, we're so glad you're here. That's the father. I'm so glad you're back. I left everybody to go after you. I'm so glad you're back. There's only one way to experience that kind of love, and that is to become a child in the Father's arms. Now, I said yesterday by means of a pastoral experience, I got insight into this passage that I wasn't expecting. One of my dear friends who is a, a pastor, he's a bivocational pastor, he has a business a very successful business in the world's eyes. But what he really likes is being a pastor. He says it funds his habits. The business does. He's a very strong man, large family. He's an experienced pastor. He comes by and meets with me to pastor me often. Um, highly regarded in our city. One of the most brilliant People I very must have a, a photogra- photographic memory. So he made an appointment with me yesterday, and and um, he said I need to come see you. And so I said, well, absolutely. And uh, I, I thought he was updating me on something that we had been working on. But when I came to my office and he was sitting there, he was crumpled up in the chair like a baby curled up, weeping. His wife had a total psychotic break. And it's been a long struggle that nobody really knew about, very complicated. And for the next five hours, we just sat together and wept and prayed and made phone calls. And I saw this giant of a man in my perspective, the man who pastors me. I'm, I'm holding him like a baby in my office. And then he said, George, you know how I often say that I think the core of Paul's theology is Philippians 2. 
that though he was in the very nature of God, Jesus became nothing. Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And then becoming our sacrifice on the cross. He said, I'm experiencing it right now. I'm experiencing that. I'm, be I'm being made a child. He didn't like it. I didn't like it. It was ugly. It was terrifying, gut-wrenching. But by the end of the evening, things, we kind of got things, you know, by, by miraculous interventions of people we didn't even know, got his wife in a stable place and, and gave him what he needed. <clears throat> he was totally dependent on everybody else for resourcing. We walked around the campus of the church just to get his legs under him before he could drive again. And he said, you know how we men do when we cry? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He did that a million times. But by the end of our time together, he, didn't, he wasn't apologizing anymore. He said, I feel so loved. Do you think that man's preaching will ever be the same? Do you think that man's business will ever be the same? Do you think the way that man will deal with other people, although he's a gracious man? And the next time I introduce him and he preaches somewhere and I say, this is a humble man, I will be saying, I've seen him humbled. It was a brutal process. But he's more beautiful, more Christ-like, more humanized than I've ever known before. And what are we really talking about? We're talking about becoming like Jesus. Jesus made himself nothing, made himself a child. We can't do that. We can't make ourselves nothing. So Jesus has done it on our behalf. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. He allowed himself to be guided by the Holy Spirit on this earth. He allowed the Father to dispatch his angels to protect him, lest he strike his foot against a stone. He allowed that, though he didn't need to, but he did that on our behalf. And... Our Lord Jesus allowed Himself to die that the Father might pursue Him even into death and raise Him to life. So it's not up to you today to master the art of becoming a child. What is up to you and me today is to say, here I am, Lord. Make me like Jesus. And then hang on for the ride. It may be painful at times, but you'll never feel more alive. You'll never be more human. And you'll never be more useful to the kingdom. You ready? Let's pray. <clears throat> Oh, 
O Holy Spirit, Your Word never comes into our hearing and into our midst without accomplishing the purpose for which You send it. And Lord Jesus, we never read Your Word except You actually show up. We feel, Lord Jesus, that reality that we have actually been in Your presence this morning, that You've been talking to us as if we're the only one in the room. And uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would not see You as an adversary, but we would as terrified as we might be, put our hands in yours and say, okay, make me a child. I want to be exactly like you, whatever it costs. That we might experience your loving protection, your pursuing love. That we might hear as you heard from the Father, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. May our humiliation come soon so that your exaltation might come all the sooner. Encourage my brothers in this room as well as those connected by other means. Oh, Lord, make us powerful in your kingdom by weakening us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.